0: Hey everybody, welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host, Pillar Catholic... I'm your host and Pillar and the Pillar's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner, uh, Ed Condon. And Ed, I'll tell you why I stumbled there. It's because when I said great Catholic conversation, I was thinking in my mind how much I wish that I could say great a la Tony the Tiger, that I had sort of that... Great in, you want a rolling repertoire. alliterative almost yes.
1: iberian r
0: that's exactly right how
2: how do you think you would do with that uh very very badly i I have a lot of friends who are spanish uh yes you do when i when I lived in London, I would go to Spain very often um both my wife and my sister lived for periods of time in Spain, so I would go and visit them, and they would often try and tempt me into trying to speak Spanish and it always fell flat and it was mostly because my pronunciation was so god-awful terrible because I can't do things like roll my r's or or lisp without um without it coming across as a a sort of caricature
0: fair enough fair enough I mean I can speak the Spanish well enough but I uh I just don't I just don't feel like I have that there great in my repertoire without it sounding yeah
2: I I I feel like you could if if you practiced i you have the kind of personal bombast that I think lends itself to that kind of exclamation
0: what I think I would need to do actually, and this is where i really this is where I realize my deficiency. what I think that I would need to do is uh watch some Tony the Tiger like watch a couple of YouTubes of Tony the Tiger because I'm not even sure that I have it clear enough in my own mind that
2: that could be but i mean i I would assume Tony the Tiger has Evolved over the years as most marketing gimmicks have. So, which era Tony the Tiger would you be hoping to imitate? Like vintage 80s Tony the Tiger, sort of mid 90s? Or, I mean, I presume there is a current iteration of of him where maybe he's a little less aggressive. Maybe it's like they're very affirming. As
0: much as you would like them to be. I I don't know what the various versions. I, I suspect that Tony, by the time he's done, will have had nine or so lives, if you will. Um, yeah, yeah, but I I don't know how he has evolved over over the years. I I know that Snapcrackle and Pop have evolved. Now Snapcrackle and Pop are like CGI. Like uh, I hate the CGI stuff.
1: <laughs> I really do. I mean, I get it
2: that it's probably you know massively cost efficient and also faster for all animation to now just be you know horrible computer generated stuff but it just it lacks the personality like i so i remember once i was um i was babysitting one of my nephews for the day and um you know he wanted to watch tv and i had work to do so i said that's fine and so i put on what i thought any boy of his age he being about 4 at the time would want to watch so i you know went onto netflix and i found he-man and you know stuff yeah, like yeah, that yeah. and i put it on and, um, he didn't want it. He, he threw an absolute screaming abdab and demanded something called Paw Patrol, which is, I mean, it, I was, I was hurt, JD. I was hurt that this is what my nephew wanted to watch, especially when he was being offered something, you know, that involved a guy
0: with a loincloth and a sword. I, I mean, what more do you it's want? It's true. I really, I, I like T-Man very much. By the power of Gray Skull, But I don't even know if it could be gotten now, probably on YouTube. Did you find it on a... Well, it didn't matter. We didn't I, it was about. on Netflix
2: when I when I looked for it. Although th- I was in London at the time, so I don't. I, I know the content may vary continent to continent. Yeah. I,
0: um, I yeah. I've never seen Paw Patrol. One thing about He Man is that um, I had a uh, He Man had a cat. Do you, Do you remember the name of He Man's cat? It was a tiger's kind of thing. Oh wait, he was a green tiger. Mm-hmm. Hang on, uh, uh, Cringer. Okay, good. I think Battle Cat though, right? Oh yeah, Cringer right. was right. But he was Cringer, yeah, then, he and then he turned, it turned into, into yeah. So I had a battle cat. Um, you know, I had a I had all, a lot of human action figures. and I had a battle cat, and I, you know, of course, I had forgotten about that because time marches on. But a few years ago, I uh, I was at my uh, sister's house, and um, my nephew, uh, who I who I one of my nephews who I love dearly, I, it wasn't a few years ago, maybe a year ago, but my nephew was playing with what I recognized as Cringer's battle cat as my battle cat, and I said, "Wow, nephew, what's his name? That's such a cool toy." And he goes, "Yeah, that's my kitty." And I said, like, well, let me tell you how cool this cat is. But second of all, that's my kitty. And, uh, you know, because what had happened, of course, is my mom had had, had passed it along. And I said, second of all, that's my kitty. And he said, no, no. He calls me. He can't, he, he can't pronounce uh, Uncle JD very well. So he calls me sort of Aja, which is approximation. He says, no, Aja, it's my kitty. And I said, yeah, okay, yeah, you know, and so I sort of made an act. (laughs) This thing that I didn't know I possessed until 15 seconds before that, I sort of made an act of the will to dispossess myself of it and to be glad that he had it and to show him how to play with it. Uh, But the kitty migrated, Battle Cat migrated from his house to my house, and now my own son, you know, plays with my own action figure, which is kind of cool. And I say to him, yeah, Daddy had that when he was a boy, and he says, no, 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 that's not yours, that's Piers. And, you know, it's true, but it's also sort of mine, right? I you know,
2: i I think you're doing very well <laughs> making this making this sort of act of self denial. Uh I I mean Do you I think have, you you would I, repossess
0: I, it and put it in a price position?
2: No, I, I wouldn't. Um and I mean I know this on information and belief because, you know, my parents' house is still full of uh toys that were around in the eighties when I was a kid and my nephews all play with them and everything and I recognize some of them. Uh many of them are, are He-Man. Sort of universe toys. None of them are actually He-Man. I think. Yeah, yeah. There are, you know, very man at arms and um, stuff. Man at mm-hmm. arms and things like that. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I look wistfully at them and think, I, I enjoyed my time with them. But you know, I'm just, I'm just glad that the the nephews are enjoying them.
0: Well, I, I am you know, too. I mean, doing it know. could
2: be worse. They could be, you know, they could be demanding. Action? Act, do you have action figures of Paw Patrol? I don't know, but I mean, you know, what fun can you have with a dog that's into recycling? I, this is not <laughs> is that what it is? This is not a template for adventure. I, this is, you know,
1: <laughs>
2: think of your most cloyingly nagging second-grade teacher and her social priorities, and this is what they're trying to inspire kids to think of as like, you know, action. It's like, oh, for God's
0: sake, please. So, the so, uh, so the pa- the patrol uh, the the patrolman the patrol dog. Uh, you know, I know that in certain European countries, it may well be true. And Paw Patrol is European, is it not? I, it's probably.
2: I mean, it's it it, it has the whiff of sort of Scandi children's content to it, it.
0: In certain European countries, of course, you can be fined heavily if you don't sort your trash and recycling appropriately. And uh, oh, absolutely. And so, I assume. I mean, based upon what you are saying and nothing else, I assume is that what the the dog is patrolling to? He does he is he trained trained to sniff out whether you've put you know your rest mule in with your glass or whatever?
2: It's very possible. I mean, it, I've I've seen it sort of you know walking through rooms, but it seems like there's a team of dogs. And one's into recycling. One's a, a sort of pseudo cop. One's a fireman dog. One's a construction worker dog. You know stuff like that. But they all live together in a sort of
0: great all seeing five eyes tower, which is the YMCA. A... One's also I think an Indian, and uh, and they live at the YMCA. Wow, well, um, is, mon- is one a motorcycle guy yet? That...
2: <laughs> I haven't seen I haven't seen a leather puppy, no. Okay. Um, but th- no, they all live in you know basically th- they live in a tower that conducts surveillance on the population of oh the local gosh. town in a manner that you know Xi Jinping would be deeply envious oh of. Oh, My God! They seem to have cameras in every room yeah. and be monitoring everything that's going on. So
0: that's the whole idea is to make children comfortable with the surveillance state.
2: Yeah, I mean that's what this is. Is it's, it's, it's propaganda, JD? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, in fairness, I you know let me let me both sides this for a second. All children's cartoons have always been propaganda. Right. But in the good cartoons of the 1980s, the propaganda was to sell us toys.
0: Right. That's exactly right. And there was, you know, you would ask sort of— Comic-Con has changed things for children's shows because there was a time, I think, when you would sort of ask the showrunner or creator of He-Man or Shiro or, you know, whatever else— uh, you know, I, I have a complicated question about He-Man's backstory, you know, a, as regards the discovery of his powers and, and in fact, the powers of Grayskull. And the guy would say, like, hey, buddy, it's a show for kids. You want to buy some action figures? And now, because of Comic-Con, you know, the showrunner of a show like Paw Patrol would probably be able to do host a panel with some of the actors, and people would ask these elaborate questions. And, in fact, there would be this extremely developed backstory of how the dog became a cop and... You know yeah. what, what? his parents thought about that, and all of these other things. No,
2: in the good old days, if you had a question about a character's backstory, you had to buy the action figure and read the cardboard right. card on the back, of and the it box would not be very satisfactory. It would be like,
0: "How? Why is He Man powerful? Because of the power of grade school? Come on, what yeah, more what, do you need? Yeah. How about you use your imagination? Yeah, that's exactly right. And or how about you just yeah, not spend so much time sort of thinking about whether you could do a gritty reboot of He Man's origin story, which actually now I would very much like to see as soon as. Where I like, are
2: you on? Where are you on the on the film with? Dolph Lungerson, uh, Masters of the Universe or whatever, the He-Man movie. Never seen it. <gasps> oh, J.D.
0: He-Man is broken in time for me as just that one action figure that my belongs to my nephew.
2: Oh, they did a live-action He-Man film in the late 80s. Strong
0: recommend. Strong recommend. Okay. This is,
2: this is some serious 80s culture.
0: Okay. Okay. Cool. Well, Ed, I had ha- I had had a topic that I wanted to talk about at the beginning of the show, but I think we should probably get to get to work, as it were, um, because some news came out. We're recording this show. We're actually recording this show on Friday, friends. So I'm not sure exactly when it's going to come out. The, the reason we're recording this show on Friday is because my laptop um, broke yesterday. My 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 MacBook did a system update, and when it did the system update, it turned off the um, the video screen so that I just had a backlit black screen, and um, somehow it then configured to be in a setting by which it would talk to me in a speak-and-spell voice about sort of computer stuff, and I I don't know why. So I took it to the store, and long story short, it's going to be a while for that. So we didn't record the show yesterday because I didn't have a machine on which to record it. We're recording the show on Friday and this morning. uh, News came from the Holy See about a a long-standing custom at the Basilica of St. Peter, Uh, and uh, that long-standing custom is the celebration of... um, Private and pilgrimage masses uh, at St. Peter's Basilica. So, if you've ever been to St. Peter's Basilica, you know um, that there are a lot of side altars, little side chapels, side altars, some of which are the tombs of saints, others of which have relics of saints within them. Um, many of which are, you know, beneath extraordinary relief statuary and you know other pieces of, of art. Um, there are side altars and some a couple of little side chapels and these sorts of things. And pilgrimage groups have historically been able to celebrate. Uh, uh, to have a mass, you know, the priest who's leading pilgrims group would be able to have a mass at at the uh, at one of those altars. And in fact, a priest—I uh, don't exactly know the process—but priests in Rome are able to celebrate mass even for themselves privately. Well, for the Lord, but even privately at one of those side altars as well, if they avail themselves of a, a reservation system. But um, this morning, the Secretary of State of the Apostolic See announced that uh, private. Celebration of Mass and pilgrimage group celebration of Mass would be uh, no longer that priests in Rome coming to Rome, pilgrimage groups, etc., uh, would be welcome to uh, have a Mass um, to, to can celebrate, and um, that pilgrimage groups who are accompanied by a bishop or priest could have the possibility of celebrating Mass in the Vatican Grottoes, but inside of St. Peter's. That this was not uh, going to continue to happen; that instead, celebration could happen. And the reason given is sort of a little bit limited. It says that um, wishing to ensure that uh, Holy Masses in St. Peter's Basilica take place in an atmosphere of uh, reflection and liturgical a, decorum, yeah, prayer, prayerfulness and liturgical decorum from now on. The following is ordered. So it, it's a very interesting, um, it, it's very interesting thing uh, because this is the sort of. Uh, and of a long standing tradition. It is.
2: And I I don't really understand what this is about or who you know, what what prompted this or, or what's to you know what's to what is the problem this is looking to fix? I can't really I can't really fathom. I've been to St. Peter's more than a few times. Um I have I have attended masses being celebrated on various side altars in St. Peter's Basilica. I have been through the Basilica while various Masses are being celebrated in the side altar. I didn't notice an absence of an atmosphere of reflection or liturgical decorum. It it seemed like part of the the ordinary thriving liturgical life of the universal church, as pilgrim groups from you know different parts of the world would all be celebrating Mass in different languages, um, you know, in different altars. I always thought it was very nice. I I don't I don't get it, man. I you know the this is the the letter is framed within the context of Lent very loosely. Uh, but this is not a Lenten reform. It's just when they're announcing it, it's not related to the coronavirus or social distancing. In fact, quite the reverse, it's saying we need to gather more people together. So I I, I don't, I I really, I'm I'm somewhat mystified. I'm also mystified as to why this is an unsigned direction from the Secretariat of State and, and not from, you know, sort of the office of the Archpriest of St. Peter's Basilica, for example,
0: or, you know. Well, it's actually to the offices that oversee uh, that that oversee them right so it 's to the canons of of uh, the uh, to the um the canons of saint peter 's basilica essentially to the liturgy office of the basilica and to uh the commissioner of the 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 fabric of saint Peter, which is essentially the the office that oversees sort of the operational things that it, within the basilica I have a question j d okay um
2: what is necessary for a legal act
0: well i I appreciate that yes that's so there are two things that you may be getting at. One is that a decree—this is a decree—must summarily express the reasons. I think this meets those requirements. It's not a very thorough summary, but it's a summary it, of the it reasons. Very,
2: very lightly grazes the box. Yes.
0: I mean, I mean, but I mean, in terms of if someone were to challenge the validity, yeah, of the no, decree I'm for saying it covers reason, the base barely, yeah. but it covers it. Um, and then the other is that it needs to be both signed and then you know witnessed by an appropriate. Notary, yeah, and there is no signature here, which is which is indeed at least on the text that we have seen, which is indeed very curious.
2: I, I find it absolutely mystifying, especially since this appears to be a, you know a decree to people who have otherwise you would think competent authority, authority over, over these matters. things.
0: So yeah. now I had been wondering, you know, I had developed a couple of theories, and um, and and some friends have suggested a couple of theories too. Um, and, uh, you know, this is, why why is this a big deal? Um, you know, people listening to the show may think, why is this a big deal? Uh, it's not the biggest deal on the face of the earth by any stretch of the imagination, but for a lot of people, uh, who go to Rome, uh, on a pilgrimage, it is a privilege and the high point of the pilgrimage to be able to have mass with their group, you know, at the church, which is. In a certain way, the Pope's Church, um, at the heart of the Church and over the tomb of Saint Peter, you know, over the the tomb of Saint Peter, Saint Peter's Basilica is in some ways more the Church of Peter, right? So the Pope, as the Bishop of Rome, his cathedral is the Lateran Basilica, which is also a beautiful place. Um, In a certain way, Saint Peter's Basilica—it feels um, like the mother church of the universal church to everyone and everyone. But it feels like the mother church of the universal church, indeed. And, uh, and it is, you know, it's an extraordinary place and it feels like the place where you are the heart of the church. Now, theologically, of course, we don't sort of have the idea, you know, the Lord's is sort of talking about, uh, you know, you, you, you guys worship on Gerizim and you guys worship at Jerusalem, but the day is coming into you know, the Samaritans, but, but the day is coming when we'll worship in spirit and truth. He's sort of rebutting the idea that there is kind of, uh, in the new covenant, uh, a, a navel of the earth, a sort of central sacred place of the earth, um, in anticipation of the fact that every altar will be that central sacred place uh, of the earth, but um, but f- but as a as a human institution in a soci- sociological way, St. Peter's is an important place for our faith. that even has feast, um, and so um, for a lot of people, being there for a basil- for a mass at the basilica is a is a significant ecclesial experience, a significant experience of faith. And I know a lot of priests have told me that it it, it is um, it is an experience. To, sell, to to offer Mass at St. Peter's, it is an experience that leaves them feeling especially uh, unified to the ministry of, of the Pope. So why is it important? It's not, as I say, it's not the most important thing ever, but it is, it is something that means, that has meant a lot to a lot of people, I think, and been a longstanding custom and tradition.
2: Yeah, and I mean, the, the, the provision they make for, for various things I find uh, strange. Bizarre, even because they say you know the, if if you re, if you're you know if you're part of a group that's being accompanied by or accompanying a bishop or a priest and you really want to celebrate mass as a group, you can do it in the Vatican Grotto, um, and
0: the Vatican Grottos are not in, that, that's not insignificant. So the Vatican Grottos are the are the tombs beneath the Basilica of Saint Peter. Yeah. So you can celebrate mass in these in these extraordinary chapels in which uh, po- popes are entombed. Um, very beautiful places. In fact, if you remember, if you think back to the visits of the U.S. bishops um, for their ad limina visits to, to Rome, I guess that was two years ago now, it, you you can probably recall in your mind pictures of the groups of U.S. bishops having mass at, at, at tombs within the Vatican gr- grottoes. It's a very, it's a significant and a beautiful place. And it also, in my mind, adds a little bit of mystery to the question of why. And I'll get to that after you make your point. <laughs> yeah.
2: And, and I mean, there, there are some people who have said, oh, well, this is a... This is also going to cancel the sort of daily celebration of the extraordinary form in St. Peter's, which I know had a, a sort of study slot, but it actually provides also for a study slot. And I think it's the Clementine Chapel for that to carry on. So, okay. I mean, this really does seem to be about just, you know, getting people off the floor of the main basilica, which, you know, I, well, I don't I, quite get. And yeah. then, you know, we have all of these. Alt- I mean, some of these altars are, are for wonderful and beautiful and important saints, but perhaps not not necessarily widely prized or recognized amongst pilgrims but we're also talking about like the the tomb and altar of jp2 which is right. mm-hmm. a, a huge focus and john uh, the 23rd too yeah a huge huge focus for pilgrim groups that are coming to rome from all over the world like going to the you know for me i remember going um going and being able to have with like three other people uh, a mass on on the on the altar for jp2 and it was it was a huge deal for me i really loved it and so the idea that you can't do that anymore is very weird they said you know oh well we'll move one of the daily masses to those altars if it's their feast day or their memorial mm-hmm. day And it's kind of like well it just seems like a waste like it's an, it it seems like a narrowing of the of the liturgical horizon of the life of the basilica which i just i don't understand the the purpose of here, here are some
0: theories that here are some theories and why do want I think the you want to go to the law would...
2: first or do you want to do that
0: we can go to the law first, sure, to the law. To the law. Um, what law are we going to, man? Well, I was going to go to the canon
2: on individual, private, and con celebration, which is, as your
0: encyclopedic memory of the code will tell you, canon... In the
2: nines. In the nines. To the nines. Canon 902, J. <laughs> canon
0: 902. You were prepared for that. I, I was only as prepared as to the nines. To the nines. Um, so, anyway, canon 902 from the Blessed Code of Canon Law,
2: says that unless the welfare of the Christian faithful requires or suggests otherwise, priests can concelebrate the Eucharist. They are completely free to celebrate the Eucharist individually, however, but not while a concelebration is taking place in the same church or oratory. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
2: So there is, if you like, a preference that there be some uniformity going on. Mm-hmm. In the place and time, so and, and what that's point.
0: about is that in the days of your in sort of monastic houses, or probably even in the Roman basilicas, you know, a chapter of canons, or monks, all of whom would have their private masses, would basically be all celebrating mass at the, all the side altars at the same time, and uh, and this is saying that uh, th- this is saying that if a con celebration is hap- taking place in the main church, that it wouldn't make sense theologically for a priest to be offering. Uh, an individual mass at another altar in the, in the same church.
2: Exactly. Either everybody's yeah. doing it individually or everybody's doing it together as a con right. celebration. You don't mix mm-hmm. a match. Now mm-hmm. I could understand uh, if the decision made here for St. Peter's was look, here are the daily mass times that mm-hmm. are steady at the, at the altar of the chair, you know, in the, in the reserve chapel All the, these are the, these are the standing daily masses of the Basilica. There is no side altar action going on while those are happening and everyone's invited to go to those and con- celebrate, but
0: I mean it's a long day, and those masses are only taking place in the morning. Like, I well, here's a here's a tricky thought about Canon 902 that I hadn't thought about before. Um, uh, we, we'll get to Canon 903 in a minute, but uh, um, that I hadn't thought about before. But okay, so uh, the concern about sort of celebrations and in individual masses going on at the same time—I don't know the degree to which that is a major concern, but let's say that the Secretary um, of State is not known
2: for its. Right. Canonical obsessions.
0: I yeah, so. right. I mean, it, it is true that, let's say, uh, your pilgrimage group booked that uh, the celebration of a mass at a particular altar at 10 o'clock, and my pilgrimage group booked the celebration of a of mass at another altar at 10 o'clock, and my mass was going to be led by a bishop, and then that bishop, you know, uh, half an hour before, he called the priests of his diocese who were working in Rome and said, hey, I'm going to have mass at the tomb of John Paul II. Do you want to join me? And they said, sure. And so then all of a sudden, you've got to can celebrate mass in one place. in theory, you know, technically, your pilgrimage group would thereby be impeded from the celebration of the Mass. Now, again, I don't think that's the consideration, but it is a sort of interesting point. Okay, so what are your theories, JD? Okay, so just to say really quickly, with regard to the idea of individual celebration of Mass in St. Peter's and how that has been important to to priests, um, Canon 903 establishes the the the, uh, the permission of a priest um to celebrate Mass in, in a church when he comes to the church, right? So in a certain way, priests it's not an absolute right, but it is worth noting that priests do have the right to celebrate Mass in churches where they, where they are. And, you know, I think that's part of why some priests have said it, it was meaningful for me to be able to come to Rome and celebrate Mass at this place, offer Mass at this place. Okay, a couple of theories uh, and why they don't work. Uh, that have been proposed to me. One is um, so. This, there's a seminary in the Vatican City State, and uh, that seminary is called. Uh, do you remember what that seminary is it's called? The
2: Pius the.
0: I believe the it is called the Pius the Tenth Seminary. Yeah, yeah Pius the tenth.
2: I, But is it a seminary? It's a minor seminary. It, there's a minor
0: seminary in the uh, in the Vatican City State. It's essentially a high school seminary. It's in fact one of the last high school seminaries, and, uh, that of which I am aware. Um, it's 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 a high school seminary, and um, and boys who attend there are boys who are discerning a vocation to the priesthood, and at the same time, boys who um, serve Mass at St. Peter's Basilica. And um, when individual Masses are being celebrated, they have the job of uh, helping a priest or bishop get from the sacristy of St. Peter's to the place where they're supposed to celebrate the Mass, and handing them a chalice and cruets and a ciborium and all of the things that they're going to need to celebrate Mass, and then ushering them to the place. That seminary is at the moment um, at the center of a serious uh, trial, a penal a trial, criminal trial. trial, not a canonical a, trial, a yeah. criminal trial, a criminal trial for um, for allegations of sexual abuse. And among the things that are alleged is that there has been at various times a culture of sexual abuse and misconduct at that seminary. So, amongst the students, amongst should. the students, but but at the same time, um, accusations of cover up of some former administrators of the seminary. Absolutely. Yeah. So I have wondered if it is possible that this prohibition of mass, uh, of individual masses in, in St. Peter's Basilica is uh, is a safe environment move. If, if you know, Father Zollner of the Commission for the Protection of Minors or someone else suggested that this uh, the thing by which uh, boys serve mass with a rotating crop of priests, many of whom they don't know, might, you know, be, uh, ha- have been flagged as a safe environment problem, which would make sense. Although some people pointed out to me uh, a few priests who lived in Rome and I floated that idea. Pointed out to me, well, yeah, but they basically go back and forth between the sacristy and uh, the altars. It's not as if they would be, you know, and the the sacristy is a very busy place, which I'll get to in a minute. It's not as if they would be um, alone anywhere. Alone anywhere. Uh, nevertheless, I think it is, you know, possible at the very least.
2: I, I think it would be weird because the accusations surrounding the seminary and the sexual abuse all have to do with student on student abuse, as far as I'm aware. So sure, it's but not also a cover of- up. But it and may and cover just... up by administrators, but what I'm saying is it's not a question
0: of, like, visiting. Like, there haven't been accusations, that's yeah. what I'm aware of, of visiting priests. But uh, that perhaps. may have led to a, just a greater desire to, in some ways, address the safe environment yeah. policies of the seminary. So that is, I think, a possibility. And actually, if that were the reason, I would un- um, that would be understandable. I mean, people might say, well, there are probably other ways to accommodate the role that those boys play in the sab- in setting up those masses, and that would be true, too. But, you know, that is a possible reason why that this might be. Another. Another. Um, the sacristy uh at st peter's basilica is as one friend put it to me this morning um like a train station uh in mm-hmm. which people are going coming going all day uh every day and it is a it is a train station uh that is um you know that has a cost associated with operation and, with its operation and and with the facilitation of uh private and pilgrimage group masses you know that somebody has to be overseeing the use of sacred vessels back and forth and the storage and proper care for and all those things of the sacred vessels. And somebody has to just be booking all these masses and directing traffic and keeping schedules and those kinds of things. And all those things are associated with the cost. And maybe there is a desire to to cut costs. There would be a desire to cut costs because as you know, the uh, Holy See is not doing too well financially right now.
2: It's not. I was actually reading their 2021 budget presentation this morning. Uh, It's not, it's not doing brilliantly, it's predicting a pretty heavy shortfall for 2021. Yeah. Um, the uh, card, not the card. Excuse me. The priest prefect of the Secretariat for the Economy has has said that the Holy See has pretty much exhausted its cash reserves in in meeting these shortfalls. It's not to say the Holy See is bankrupt, but it is to say right. that, you know they don't they don't have any more loose change in the couch to,
0: to. And we anticipated that its shortfalls would be covered by reserves. So if it doesn't have reserves, then its shortfalls become a more acute problem.
2: Yes, and I mean yeah. to be clear, there's there's plenty of mechanisms for the Holy See to to generate revenue if properly managed, and also you know one hopes the faithful will will give and give generously to to the Holy See through the collection of Peter's Pence and other
0: things, and you know. But one cannot generate revenue directly from the celebration of individual pilgrimage groups, group masses at St. Peter's Basilica because of a little thing called simony. Yes, you're not supposed or, to do that. Right. It's very bad. Simony's I mean, not charge a good thing. For, yeah, The Holy See could maybe take a collection or something like that. But
2: even still. the Germans don't charge for that sort of thing.
0: <laughs> right. um, but still, so
1: even... Actually, so I, the, do they? I
2: I might come back to that. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think the Germans are charging. I, I Yeah. There's... There have, been, there have been issues, J.D., around the Germans and simony, particularly uh, regarding burial of the faithful and things like that. But you know what? We're, we don't need to go there right now. Sorry. Carry on. Let's continue talking about this. That is an
0: interesting explanation. So that is ex- that is a possible explanation. But the reason why it falls a little bit short for me is precisely because the private celebration of masses in the Vatican Grottos is permitted. And the Vatican Grottos are another place at St. Peter's Basilica under the care of St. Peter's Basilica. And, uh, and so... The uh, the cost would be there. Uh, the the cost would be there as well. Uh, so I'm not totally satisfied by that. It could have been a, something of a cost cutting measure, but I'm not totally and completely satisfied with that answer either. Another possible answer is a more theological answer: a desire to encourage celebration um, as as a des- as a desire to genuinely encourage sort of pilgrimage groups. From various places to come together, uh, you know, pe- people from various places to come together, and also bishops and priests leading um, pilgrimage groups to come together and to be able to um, uh, offer and assist at the holy sacrifice of the mass together. And I understand that. I I genuinely understand that. I mean, if the if the church itself is the, um, in a certain way, the sort of earthly, at least symbolic center of the universal church, the idea that we might come together is um i think a good one um you know it's the the rest of the decree as such is regrettable because um those side altars are significant and it would be significant to see mass not celebrated on them and things like that but um, if the idea is in fact that there's a desire to um see pilgrims and priests from different parts of the world offer the holy sacrifice of the mass together I I could dig it. I mean, I understand the other concerns, and I'm not saying I would necessarily, but I could dig it. I don't know. What do you think? I I mean, I have often thought it would be,
2: you know, you see on TV images of sort of, you know, big masses at St. Peter's. And I've often thought, you know, that'd be kind of cool to see something like that. And when you go to Rome ordinarily, you don't, you know, it feels, it can feel, I suppose, a little piecemeal about, you know, little groups of 20 or 10 here and there throughout the place. And so I could see the appeal of saying, you know, you know, if this is going to be the you know effectively people are coming here because they view it as the mother church of um of the universal church to have a sort of central gathering point at mass on a daily basis i i mean i can see the i can see the benefits of that i i would again think that there are ways and there are ways of doing it and say so you're not going to have other masses going on at the side altars while there is a mass going on up front and if you say there's going to be you know 3 a day throughout the morning there's going to be a seven and eight and nine or you know a seven nine and an eleven or whatever like that or or even if you just said look no private masses in the morning if you want to come to mass at st peter's we want everyone together up front you know at the altar of the chair or whatever I, i i could dig that but i you know i not everyone's going to be able to make that and some people will you know if i was a priest Or bishop leading a pilgrim group from Poland, and I suddenly found out there was no option to celebrate Mass on the tomb of JP two. I'd be vexed.
0: Yeah, I I would be too. And and also, there is another another possible reason is um, is a sort of uh, maybe the other side of the same coin, which is a sort of increasing theological aversion to the idea of private masses of of a priest celebrating Mass by himself or um of a priest celebrating mass by himself there's increasing sort of emphasis on celebration, which um which in some ways um or, or a priest celebrate you know or a priest not celebrating mass by himself even with a just cause and and those those reasons are theologically in my view theologically insufficient you know like it's uh, there's this whole there's this whole view about uh the celebration of private masses where people will say you know it's not it, that, that the mass is um, both the priest and the people, which is true, and an expression of the whole church, which is true, and therefore a priest should not offer mass by himself. And that's theologically stunted, deep, deeply theologically stunted, and especially when people say and that's not that's not sort of the ethos. The idea that any of the, priest is ever truly alone saying alone, mass it's exactly, as far as I'm concerned, exactly a heresy, because right.
2: you're denying the communion of saints. Well,
0: that's exactly—I mean, yeah, so who is in attendance at, at at the celebration of the mass? All the saints um, and the angels uh, are in attendance. Right, Funny exactly. Answer. That's exactly right. Right. Um, and so um, and so that idea, you know, and especially when that idea is sort of framed as it's not the spirit of the council. Well, I don't think the person making that argument has read Sacrosanctum Concilium. There's no such thing as the right. spirit exactly. of the council. Exactly. There are documents of so, the council. Everything else they made up in the 70s. So were that the reason, it would be an insufficient reason. So that's an issue. Now, I want to come back to one point that you made because I want to go through those reasons. But at the same time, Ed, you, you rightly point out that the thing is not signed. Uh, we've not confirmed for ourselves the Veracity of you know the authenticity of the document. The reason this why would be an amazing April Fool's joke. Oh, it would be the reason why ecclesiastical documents have to be signed and notarized is to, for people to be able to confirm their authenticity. And that's you know so there. So what I thought you were kind of getting at is so it may be an invalid decree. I that that's is true. exactly what
2: I was getting at. I I would view this, I, but I mean I'm not sure who who it is who could legitimately defy it because if you're a priest you can't just wander into St. Peter's and, start right, and say mass well it's
0: no. not a valid decree. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You have to schedule. And if it, if it's a mem- you know if they say well it's a memo not a decree. Well a memo in my argument in my view, is a decree. But the reason why, that's not a loophole. You know what I mean? You and I are sort of saying like, well, it doesn't seem signed, so maybe it's not about But that's not a loophole. It's to confirm the authenticity of the thing. And the, yeah. the ro- role of the notary is to confirm the authenticity of the signature. Here, with none, you know, I think it's reasonable to say we have not, at the very least, confirmed the authenticity of the thing. No. and It would indeed be an amazing April Fool's joke a little bit early.
2: Yeah, but that's not what it is. And the secretary of State this. <laughs> I, it would be great. And well, I'm,
0: I mean, we don't. I, I'm not saying it's an April Fool's joke from the Secretariat. I'm just saying we have not confirmed. No, you uh, th- know, this, is, no... this thing is basically floating around right now, and we have not confirmed that it's real.
2: I, I would say this fails the basic test for a valid legal instrument, which is what it purports to be. Um,
0: but that I, would I, be a pedantic point. Well, that would be a pedantic point. If we, if, if, if the, if the stampa, the, the, if the stamp said, um, the, the Holy See Press Office said. Um, Yes, this is, you know, this was issued by the Secretary of State. Well, then there would be a pedantic point for you and I that it was not signed, you know, because you're right. Right. As a matter of practical judgment, we wouldn't be able to do anything about that. Someone might break recourse of it. You know why it's not signed, I think? Why? I have a theory about this. Because the Secretary of State has form
2: for releasing unsigned documents. Hmm. Um, And they're almost always on uh, topics that they know that if someone's signature is at the bottom of it, that person would get flamed for it.
0: And what I do notice, though, is that I don't see a protocol number on the document. Uh, a protocol number is basically a number that ecclesiastical documents are usually assigned for the purposes of filing. That is true. Uh,
2: there is no protocol number I, don't, on this. I, I hadn't do not see a protocol
0: that. number. This is... <laughs> so that, I mean, you know, but truthfully, by the time we get this podcast out, that's probably going to be answered one way or another, so I'm not going to sound that clever. But, yeah. Ed, I do not see a protocol number on this document.
2: I don't either. Uh, there, I don't think there was a protocol number. Uh, there certainly wasn't a signature on the document that came out of the secretary just did a few years ago on the uh, conscience rights of underground Chinese clergy who didn't want to sign up to the CPC. Right,
0: and that document has been sort of confirmed that the authenticity of that document has been post facto confirmed, but. Two right, points. no, I'm
2: saying, so it's not yeah. a question of, I I don't think it's a mistake, is what I'm saying, that when documents come out of the Secretariat of State that are unsigned, I think it's because they know whoever's name is attached to the bottom of this is going to face some tough questions that they are not necessarily going to want to answer. That and might be. I, I, but that, yeah, that if I had to guess, this is unsigned
0: because nobody wants their name on it. That That's the most likely answer, but for what it's worth, there is neither a signature nor a protocol number. There I'll is I'll say not. something. I add, how can I say this? Ed, a couple of years ago, in my job as a diocesan official, more than a couple of years ago, uh, more than a decade ago, in my job as a diocesan official, I had the task of cleaning out um, an archive, a room, a room of archives. And in that room of archives, I came across an entire box of letterhead for the congregation, the Vatican's congregation for the clergy. <laughs> Blank letterhead for the congregation for the clergy, and you know I had. A little bit of fun with it. In I'm that, glad. I sent notes to clerics who were friends of mine. You know, you are hereby instructed to uh, good you for know, you only only wear gray clerics. Uh, you know, the director <laughs> of the congregation for clergy. Uh, you know, you are hereby. And I would usually give them a couple of clues to figure out that it was me, and they usually did. But I, I mean, I had fun with it, and and somewhere along the way, I've lost the box, which is unfortunate because it was fun. But uh, but the point is, if you know if. Flynn could come across such a box of stationery. He's not the only one who could. And well, there is so, a again, seal at the bottom of this, or at least there what is a seal. Yeah, they've they've set a seal upon its heart, as it were. Um, but I am seeing a digital image, so I have not. Yeah,
2: I can't feel. I can't. JD, I just, I, I, in good conscience as a journalist, I cannot state as a fact that this is a valid document right. or an authentic indeed, document.
0: Indeed, 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 It may well be. I have mm-hmm. every reason
2: to suspect it probably is, but. No, I, 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 yeah, could I think not it probably
0: affirm. is, too, but no one has confirmed that, so it's worth noting. Yeah, yep. definitely I, worth noting. Yeah, okay. Maybe Something this is will... like
2: Cardinal Sarah's, like, parting joke.
0: <laughs> he was cleaning out of a uh, closet, too, and he came across some Secretary of State uh, stationery. And he, said, and well, he just yeah. thought, they'll never see this coming. This will be hilarious. It. It'll take the them Flynn If I leave
2: it unsigned, it it'll take them a week to figure out who did this and if they were meant to.
0: I was going to tell you a story of a different April Fool's joke, but I... Uh, you know what? I'll tell you closer to April Fools.
2: I'm worried because you have more than once played pranks on me before.
0: <laughs> I had a story of a cool prank, but I truly am going to wait because uh, you know that's how you you know what Ed, you know what they say when you read like things about how to build your audience and stuff like that, which I skim sometimes, but not really. They say to they say to embed some teasers in there. So uh, someday soon, I'll tell the story of a fantastic ecclesiastical April Fools joke. Okay,
2: well, I will okay. look
0: forward okay. to that. Fantastic, great. All right. What do you want to talk about? Let's talk about something that we can confirm. <laughs> so we can confirm the, we can confirm the authenticity of a document, um, which we have not examined and which does not have a seal or a protocol number and which has not been confirmed by any ecclesiastical officials. But we can confirm uh, some reporting that we did this week about um, the development of a document uh, at the uh, U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops—a document on the subject of Eucharistic coherence
2: yes yes uh, we reported this week that the administrative committee of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops
0: which is composed of the officers of the conference the heads of various committees well the heads of all the committees and um, and then regional representatives so the conferences the conferences as people may or may not know broken up into a number of sort of regions of bishops um, and each region has a representative at the administrative committee.
2: That's correct. Anyway, so the the regional committee had a meeting at which it was discussed and a plan was put forward to give the entire uh, Bishops' Conference a vote in June when they are scheduled to have a virtual meeting because they think it will still be pandemic o'clock in June this year. Um, to have Well, a virtual...
1: it will
0: be. It'll be pandemic o'clock until the 4th of July, the president said.
2: I choose not to to weigh too heavily the words of mere politicians, JD. They have a habit of reversing themselves. So, you know,
0: <laughs> I think that if President Biden said it will be the end of the pandemic by July fourth, it's because he will be able to announce on July second that it's the end of the pandemic and people could get together if they want to, and he will want to uh, uh, he will want to say, "See, we finished ahead of schedule." I and think that's it, not saying anything about President Biden, except that he's a classic politician who likes to say, uh, you know, who likes to say that he has achieved things ahead of goal timelines that he... Yeah, and the economy is going to
2: be reopened by Easter 2020.
0: I don't <laughs> I, you know. Whatever. Well, I, I
2: think we're as likely to see a return to normal life
1: according to... But the to person the...
0: who said that is not a classic politician. He's not trained in the ways of under-promising and over-delivering. In fact, his rhetorical style was to over-promise move the goalposts under deliver and then say that he had surpassed the goalposts right I mean and again that's it's just a different rhetorical style I,
2: I, again i if a politician says it i I usually wait till three days after it's actually happened to to believe them um but the, the, neither here nor there uh the bishops will apparently uh be be maybe getting a vote on the idea of producing this document on so-called eucharistic coherence, which is basically a circumlocution for what are we going to do about Catholic politicians who are uh, unbelievably pro-abortion, both in their campaigning and in their exercise of office, and appear to be presenting themselves for communion in various cases in a state of obstinate manifest grave sin, because obviously different bishops have taken different approaches in different parts of the country, and this is... This is not a light matter. This is not a question of personal style or pastoral uh, priority or political calculus. This is fundamentally about the law of the church. There, are, There is canon law that is very clear on, on what you can, cannot, and must and must not do. Uh, in certain circumstances, the Catechism is very clear on the gravity. And then an
0: interpretation of that law from the from the former prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, who said that law can be it can be interpreted this way as it relates to the situation.
2: I don't think he would say can. I think it said should. Yeah, should. Yeah. Um, anyway, so so there's not there's there's not really. Um, On paper, in the law and teaching of the church, there's not a lot of wiggle room here for people to do different things, and yet they are. And that is increasingly becoming untenable, because obviously every time the current president of the United States goes to mass, the entire White House press pool stand like breathless puppies on the church doorstep, uh, panting and wagging their tails to take pictures of him, that when the president makes a phone call to the president of Mexico, he throws around rosary beads and talks about his love of Our Lady of Guadalupe, patroness of the unborn, Joe, Um, And, and, you know, various other things. So the the, you know, his press secretary, when asked questions about the Hyde Amendment or the Mexico City policy or other abortion uh, policies that his administration may be pursuing uh, or trying to repeal, uh, his press secretary said, I'd just like to take this opportunity to remind you that Joe Biden is a devout Catholic, Mm -hmm. um, you know, thereby apparently linking bizarrely his supposed devout Catholicism to his support for legal abortion which is a monstrosity um so there this is this is not a problem that is going to go away it is in fact getting um more and more highlighted every day and this inconsistency is becoming a problem not just with Joe mm-hmm. Biden to be clear also House Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh has been uh in in a very uh help me JD what's the word I'm looking for here you told
0: me that I tend to flame people on the podcast, and so I'm trying this week really to dial it back a little bit. She has, um, a, she has been in a pregarious position vis-a-vis the church's law with regard to abortion and the church's teaching with regard to abortion. As a person who has promoted uh, uh, expansion of legal protection for abortion and, and, and has recently begun promoting um, the, the, the allowance of federal funding for abortion, she has been in a position that would be seen to be at odds with the church's uh, clarity. Not only that abortion is immoral, but the church's clarity that uh, laws permitting abortion are themselves unjust laws. Yes. How's that? That I think that's. I was.
2: I was going to say she's advanced the vomitous implication that <laughs> abortion is, uh, is quasi sacramental because she was once asked about abortion and said this is sacred ground for me. Um, Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, that. It, anyway, so there are other there are other politicians. Uh, be they speakers of the House of Representatives, be they the President of the United States, be they state governors, uh, who are very much in the mix on this. And some some bishops uh, in in different dioceses have uh, applied the norms of canon law, particularly Canon 915, to state level politicians who are in uh-huh. pretty much exactly the same circumstances at the yep. state level mm-hmm. as uh, these federal ones. And other bishops have said that they are they would never consider so applying uh, the the moral and canonical laws of the church. To politicians, because of what is effectively a political calculus, that it would be inconvenient for them, it would be uncomfortable for the church, it would be politically interpreted, uh, and and all these other sorts of things. So they they have the bishops have long mooted. For this is a correct
0: possible use of that word, <laughs> friends. W- this is something I'd be glad for you to weigh in on. Ed says that it's the in phrase- the Cambridge Dictionary. I sent yeah, you the link. I, 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 please allow me to finish. Ed says that the phrase long-mooted is a phrase that is commonly understood to mean long-considered or long-thought or, or long—yeah. Is, uh, is that an expression with which you are familiar? If so, um, keep it to yourself. But if not, uh, <laughs> please make sure to clarify for Ed in whatever way you would like uh, that long-mooted is not an idiomatic phrase that Americans uh, are, w- are familiar with. I, I don't recall ever asserting as fact that it's a phrase
2: that Americans are familiar with. I just said that it is <laughs> which is which is why English when i usage. said to
0: you in your copy i don't think our readers will know what you're talking about because i don't know what you're talking about i was considering the fact that the lion's share of our readers though not all uh are 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 residents of these here united states and while i for one am glad for our readers from the united kingdom of great britain and ireland and other parts of the commonwealth of
2: great britain and northern ireland jd that's kind of a sensitive modifier. i thought they
0: referred to it they they don't call it the united kingdom of great britain and ireland no. But the, but the Queen of England claims herself to be the Queen of Ireland, doesn't she? Oh, my she? God.
2: Oh, oh boy. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no. No. Uh,
1: no. <laughs>
2: Nobody's claiming that. Nobody... Oh, wow. Okay.
0: <laughs> no. Oh, 26 plus 6 equals 1. You know what I'm saying? <sighs> Anywho. Uh, long mooted. The bishops have long considered have long considered producing a document
2: uh, which would make, you know, not not pass a binding norm on all the bishops or tell the bishops what they had to do in a given circumstance because it's not the function or the or within the competence of the U.S. Bishops' Conference to tell individual diocesan bishops what to do uh, in their own diocese in, in a subject like this. It's absolutely not. But to have a common expression of understanding and intent so that they could... Um, Better address what appears to many Catholics right now to be, you know, to take the reverse of their own plan for a statement of Eucharistic coherence, an incoherent situation mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, in which,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, it, it seems to be a case of what is uh, binding and applicable moral and canonical law in one diocese is not in another, what is, uh, you know, an action that could have serious grave spiritual harm to a Catholic. In one diocese, does not in another. You know, it, it It's not coherent. So hopefully we're going to get a statement of coherence from them if they vote that they want one. If they did, it would be, I believe, up to the doctoral committee of the USCCB to produce such a statement, which would need to go to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in Rome. To for... be reviewed. Hold for one moment,
0: please, if you would, Ed. I would be delighted. Ed, I... And I am excited to share with you that uh, we're going to have to put that conversation on pause because we have a special guest to the podcast <gasps> for a moment. I uh, don't believe it, ladies and gentlemen. My dad.
1: I am so happy to be here on the pillar, but I have to tell you something, Ed. It's great to see you,
2: Mr. Flynn. <laughs> I this is this is a moment of extreme this pleasure is, for me. I you this know is,
1: this is just wonderful. You know, uh, you guys were um, you guys were talking the other day about should you go live and all this stuff. So I'm telling you, the vision of you, Ed. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. What confident. is that? It would bring what, literally What is that, of that to you. Uh, what is that behind you? That's oh, the creation of Adam. Oh, yeah. I see. Well, from oh, you have the creation picture behind you. From this angle, you were covering Adam, and God had His finger in your ear.
2: Yes, I. I, <laughs> I it has occurred to me that it looks like I have, if I sit at the right distance from yes. like two fi- a finger in each ear from the yeah. painting.
1: Yeah. So, so basically, you are now part of the creation, as you are. Cre- uh, Part of the creation of the pillar And I just encourage you guys to keep going
2: I, I'm so excited to have you on This
1: This is delightful <laughs>
2: you, you have to know that J.D. tells all sorts of wonderful stories and anecdotes about you And for the first year that I knew J.D. I was convinced he was making most of them up that you No, were they're, all, they're, a...
1: they're, they're, they're all true The, the <laughs> reason why the, uh, the listeners aren't going to hear them Is because they're not worthy They're not, uh, they're not exactly uh, radio uh, stories well, But yeah. uh, we'll just, we'll just uh, push that one aside
2: Nevertheless, I'm grateful that
1: I got to know. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent to see you, Ed. You too. Good seeing you, brother. What? I see you all the time. (laughs) It's excellent to see you too. Uh, Yeah, that's right. All right, Dad. Good to see you. All right. Okay. See you in a couple weeks. See you in a couple weeks. Going to work. New Mexico. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Ladies and gentlemen, my dad. Or war.
0: That was fun. Yeah, so my dad was stopping by because he my dad is a uh, is a my dad works for a company that contracts with uh with um that has several contracts related to issues of issues of aviation. My dad is in, works in aviation and he previously worked uh um in a he he worked until very recently um in Afghanistan. He would do um Two months working in 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 Kabul and then uh, and then a month home and then two months in Kabul and then a month home. When the pandemic started, my dad was sort of stuck in Kabul for like six months because he couldn't get a flight home, and that was a little bit hard for him. That was a lot hard for him. And then when he got home, he discovered that he had um, prostate cancer, so he had to have his uh, he had to have his prostate cancer treated. And subsequent to that, he decided, with the strong encouragement of our family, that he not. Return to Afghanistan, So he's starting a new job doing some contracting work related to aviation that will be located in New Mexico. So he is leaving now, and he'll be, like, working a couple weeks in New Mexico, then a couple weeks home, then working a couple weeks in New Mexico, then a couple weeks home. So that's why he's stopping by. And I'm glad he did. Yeah, likewise, likewise, likewise. So anyhow, that's my dad. Back to the matter uh, at hand. Back to the matter at hand. Um, Should the U.S. bishops uh, say
2: they would like to see such a statement of Eucharistic coherence? Mm-hmm. From the conference, it would be as I understand it developed by the committee for doctrine at the USCCB, and I think a
0: working group of consultation of consultants. I can confirm that that I think the doctrine committee is now beginning to form a working group of consultants to help them plan for the statement should the U.S. bishops uh, approve the ongoing development of it. Which is, I think, by June they want to have at least an outline. Yeah,
2: yeah, you know, Mm -hmm. get ahead of the game a little bit, and that would be good. And then I, I guess, I would, I would presume that you would see a vote on final adoption of a text uh, in the November meeting later this year, which would be great. I, You know, that would be fun. And, J.D., I have often complained to you on this podcast, and you have often pushed back against me uh, when I have so complained, that USCCB meetings can be a little boring.
0: <laughs> no, not if you know what you're looking for. That's like saying, I mean, sure. so I think that watching... I think that watching spring. You training love is committee boring. meetings. This is no. Yeah, I do. I do. I really do. I like the parlo- I, I like. I like the drama of a committee meeting. A good. Committee yeah, but there meeting is very and... little
2: drama in USCCB oh, meetings. Oh, not.
0: fair. You just have to know what you're looking for.
2: Right. Well, so this is my point: is if they do get a vote on this in June, and if they are voting to approve a final document on it in November, that is going to be as close to must see TV as the USCCB gets. I mean, they weren't able to come up with just a sort of very generic. Re-upping with minor tweaks of their pre-election document forming consciousness of faithful citizenship, without actually having you know nearly blood on the carpet. They were at each other's throats. Particularly Bishop um, McRoy of San Diego, I remember, got up and basically picked a fight with the whole room. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if if that's what it is when they're just talking about sort of in general terms about you know uh, the the exhortation um of Catholics to consider abortion as the preeminent social concern of the church in informing their consciences for for elections, imagine when they're dealing with an actual document talking about this person or this person or a person in this situation should not be receiving like communion. this yeah. is going to be this there' there's going to be
0: some Aggressive collegiality going on <laughs> now let me say a couple things about that first of all um, it, it, it could be especially interesting because uh, most likely that will be the first time that the bishops are meeting in person if if they're so they're going to vote on in in June basically on should we move forward with the document then if the document is written and and approved by the cdF which I'll talk about again in a minute, um, it could be voted upon uh, you know in terms of like pr- publication of the document. Uh, at the next meeting at the November meeting, and the November meeting is probably very probably the first meeting at which the bishops will be in assembly with one another and in like more than two years well yeah more than two years uh or exactly two years it'll it, it'll be uh the first time that they have been like together in the same room in quite some time, so that will add to you know the sort of um Uh, the the fact that everybody's sort of getting back after a particularly difficult two years for the church. But the other thing, Ed, the other question, and, and a question that's worth considering and a question that's worth journalists paying attention to, I hope other journalists pay attention to it, is whether the bishops will discuss this matter both at their June meeting and at their November meeting in the public session of the conference or in the executive session of the conference. The public session of the conference is outward facing. We can see it. You could watch it on TV. As people know, I live tweet it. The executive session of the conference is exactly what it sounds like. The bishops go into a meeting that is private, and even very few members of the USCCB staff are permitted to be there. And um, uh, and, uh, and it is an opportunity for far more private discussion. I'm a big fan, in general, of executive session. I think it is important that bishops have opportunity to engage with each other in pr- in private. Um, I think that the Holy Father was right. The retreat at Mundelein in 2019 was a very good idea. However, on Issues of um, considerable import for the life of the entire church. I also see the benefit of bishops being um, uh, bishops putting their name, so to speak, on their positions.
2: Yeah, I I I, I agree and accept that there are some things that bishops are only ever going to speak candidly about behind closed doors, and mm-hmm. and I you know that's a reality, and I don't, I, it's not one that particularly surprises or bothers me. But on something like this, where the problem is incoherence where the problem is the appearance of completely different views on on things that are objective matters of church teaching in law so it's not a question of you know this is you know my truth you can have your own little interpretation of this it's like no this is a black or white issue either this is true and this is what we teach and this is what we hold and this is what we must do or not right Um, so on an issue like that i where there is you know public scandal not in the sense of you know people are pearl-clutching and horrified, but as in scandals and there is there is confusion. This is known. The faithful are yeah. in a position of unrest and confusion, looking at their leaders on an important subject uh, that has national weekly prominence, and that needs to be addressed. So I, I would hope we will see, maybe we won't see it in, in June, um, if they're just taking a sort of straight up or down on whether to go ahead with this document, I could see that they might not want to have a, a sort of big hoo-ha about it uh, before the document's even been drafted. But I would hope that at least in November, if they do go ahead, we would see a full public debate on this because the faithful need to hear it
0: you know, and because to... the matter has already been in the public square, like you know, bishops have already staked their positions in public. You yeah. know, bishops who have said, "I don't want to," uh, you know, "I don't want to sort of give this guy." You know, as as Cardinal Dolan said a couple of years ago about about Governor Cuomo, "I don't want to give this guy," um, you know, uh, "something that he can wear as a badge of honor, namely having been disciplined by the Church." And and other bishops have said things to the contrary. It sort of is out there. And when you say it's a matter of scandal, what what's meant? It's What's magical for people? Well, yeah, I mean, it is a question, and I think I think that uh, as I talk with people who have different perspectives on the question of holy communion um, for pro-choice politicians, or actually, I think politicians who, in other ways, re- reject consistently the teaching of the church, the, the clear teaching of the church. What I think people fail to appreciate is that it can genuinely be something that raises a question about the sincerity of the church's leaders. A lot of people, I think you know, think, oh, well, you know, people just want to see pro-choice politicians denied communion because that's good for their party, you know, that, or that's good for their Republican politics or whatever. I don't have Republican politics. I, I really, I really and demonstrably do not have Republican politics. And I don't want any party uh, in the mainstream to win things. I accept as an inevitability they will, but it's really not my goal or intention. Um, and uh I, For me, what I see, what I think is important in the church is good governance, and part of good governance is consistent governance and consistent application of the law. And what I've said before, and you said it well in your newsletter this week, is that when bishops say, I can make, the law, yes, the law of the church says X, but I can make a judgment that says X is pastorally not a good idea. And especially when they can do that between closed doors and sort of tell one another behind closed doors, well, we're not going to follow the law of the church on this. Uh, in as much as it's this is what the law of the church is generally understood to be. Well, that leaves me concerned about um, something that you might call clericalism, which is to say I can supplant the wisdom of the church with my own judgment. And I, I think we've probably soapboxed on this a, a lot of times, but that strikes me as being what's at stake. Mm-hmm. I can supplant the wisdom of the church and the law of the church, in fact, with my own judgment when I deem it to be... Valuable. Now, I think if there are bishops who wanted to say, we want a definitive clarification from the Holy See that Canon 915 in fact does not apply to politicians, or we want to start a letter writing campaign to the Holy See that they take Canon 915 out of the law of the church, that would be their prerogative. And, you know, whether you disagree with them or not disagree with them, they're saying, we want the law of the church to reflect what we think is the proper discipline of the church. Fine. But to say instead, we uh, we're not even going to get into a debate about what the law of the church is because we think that our pastoral judgment is the thing that matters here. That's the thing that, as a person who thinks good governance is important, and you know, um, who has seen the effect of bad governance in the McCarrick report and et cetera, uh, gives me serious pause. Yep, me too. Yeah, a conference of scoff laws
2: is not a good luck.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and I, you know, I don't, I, I, I think there's a there's an e- it's easy to sort of be too hard on the conference or too dismissive of the reality of their concerns. And I do think there are people who say, well, no, we I'm have saying getting, it's on a good you know, look. I'm not saying they are. I'm saying if they,
2: for example, and I'm not predetermining, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, the conference needs to come up, the doctrinal committee needs to draft a document that absolutely flames Nancy Pelosi and, you know, bars her from communion everywhere from the, you know, Atlantic to the Pacific coast. They need to have exactly what they are proposing To make, which is they need to have a statement that makes some kind of coherent sense out of their position, Mm -hmm. because at the moment it doesn't make any sense, and that's what the people actually care about. It right, yeah. If you can come up with a document that says, "Look, we we are aware of what Canon 9:15 says. We are aware of what the Catechism says about abortion. We are aware of what the CDF has previously clarified on the application of Canon 9:15 to pro-choice politicians. We are aware of all that. Here's our position, and here's why we, as a body, think." the way that you can correctly interpret and apply the teaching and law of the church is X, Y, Z. I'm fine with that. You know, Whatever they come up with, I may like it, I may dislike it, I may agree with it, I may disagree with it, but that's my primary concern is that they have to do it coherently. Because at the moment, it's just kind of everyone sort of rolls their eyes and winks and goes, yeah, but that's, you know,
0: yeah, yeah, but that's, that's like a pain in the ass. I don't want to do. deal with it. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think that's part of it. Where the pressure is going to be is at the CDF. And here's what I mean. So, the Holy, so we know that the, if the U.S. bishops draft a document, they're going to have to send it to the CDF for if not sort of formal approbatio, at the very least. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: At least give them the chance to weigh in if they wish to Give them the chance to weigh in. Yeah, that's exactly right. And certainly it's in a certain way not formal approbatio because it would come before the promulgation of the law, not after. But um, if they have to send it to the CDF to weigh in, that means the CDF is going to have to weigh in substantively on an issue if the bishops write a document that has any substance on the issue. If they write a document that doesn't have any substance on the issue, that's a problem in itself. But if they write a document that has any substance on the issue, they're going to send it to the CDF. At the same time, the bishops of Germany are saying, rather consistently, um, we think that uh, the Eucharist should be uh, shared with Protestants under any number of circumstances, and here are the circumstances, and we think that there are other kinds of Eucharistic openness to which the Church should um, consider, for of which the Church should consider. Um, in other words, were the U.S. bishops to sort of write something strong about this in that direction, uh, you know, in the direction that we've been talking about? You would basically have two conferences of bishops— saying sort of polar opposite things at the same time in the life of the church and clarity about that would fall to the congregation for the doctrine of the faith and i suspect the congregation for the doctrine of the faith will not be keen to have that decision thrust into their laps because they will not they will not want to they frankly i mean whatever you think of it i don't think the congregation for the doctrine of the faith is going to want to let the box stop with them, and 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 I have wondered whether that will mean. And I, by the way, this thing that I'm saying right now is something that I intend to write. So you're getting a preview of an analysis I'll probably write next week. But I have wondered, in fact, if if the if officials of the CDF will encourage the U.S. bishops to soften their document or make it open to you know several plausible readings, or discourage the U.S. bishops from moving forward with the document precisely because I don't think they want this problem on their lap. Because whatever's happening in the church in the U.S. There is an ongoing question of the German bishops proposing a series of things that are contrary to Catholic teaching and the genuine sort of concern that that could lead to a separation of the bishops in Germany from the communion of the church.
2: I hear you. I wonder if perhaps the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith might not look at this as their way out, that they can't, they don't want to, or don't feel um, they have a strong enough uh, voice at the moment to publicly. Impose the teaching of the church on the German bishops in the way that they would otherwise like to. But what the U.S. bishops would have in this hypothetical triangle that you've just drawn is the U.S. bishops have. Previous guidance from the CDF on the subject at issue
0: from the prefect from of the CDF, the prefect of the There are CDF, people who so say, "Well, it was not. It was not an official document of the CDF. It was a private letter from the." Doesn't prefect matter, of the but CDF. if you, I don't you, know how much that distinction actually makes a difference.
2: It doesn't make any difference because if you read guidance that comes, it's often to one from right. the prefect mm-hmm. of the CDF to the right. person who proposed the question and said I'll and it's out. and it's sometimes uh, either implicitly or even explicitly said, and you are to circulate this to everyone else who has the same question because this is what we have to say about it. Um, But anyway, so if the U.S. bishops were to come up with a document uh, or a proposed statement on this and then send it to the CDF, presumably they would just staple to the back of it in recognition of your congregation's previous advice on exactly this topic, see attached. In which case the CDF isn't going to be asked if they want to, you know, soften or um, discourage what the U.S. bishops have written. They basically are then put in the position where, well, are you going to reverse yourselves? Right, yeah and mm-hmm. I don't think they'll want
0: to do that. That's a very good point, Ed. That's a very good point. Well, well said. Thank you. All right. Well, if this were car talk, I'd say, "Well, you've wasted another very good hour listening to me and my but it's not. So, well, Ed, our time has come to an end, uh unless there's anything you'd like to add or anything you'd like to share with us or
2: No, I I um I I'm feeling feeling pretty good about this conversation. I think it was Yeah, right. me too. This is a good show. This is I think this was a good I show. Only one question for you. Digame. Have you yet got Avril Lavigne out of your head? <laughs> because I have not, and I so really, really, really wrote, regret that I, joke.
0: Listeners, I'm sure you, you may have read a story that we that Ed and I wrote uh, at the Pillar this week about the question of vaccines and, and the U.S. Bishops' Conference and their statements on vaccines and stuff, and how some of that was complicated, and so we headlined the story Something like – or it was an analysis. We headlined the analysis something like uh, bishops and vaccines, why you have to go and make things so complicated. Uh, and, uh, you know, which, as you know – It seemed uh, like a cute, funny thing to do with the time,
2: J.D., but <laughs> here we are four days later, and I can't get the damn song out of my head.
0: <laughs> oh, would it help? Is there a Weird Al parody or anything? I'm not aware of a Weird Al I'm not either, but uh, chill out, what you yelling for? Lay back, it's all be done before. And if you could only let it be, you would see... Take it away, Ed. I, I'm kind of impressed like you knew all that by you heart. the way you are. Yeah, well, you know about watches. When we're driving <laughs> in <into> the car, <laughs> and you're talking to me one-on-one, but you become... Sing it, Ed. No, I, I don't sing. Thank you. <laughs> I know that's not true.
2: No, it is true. I don't sing and I don't dance.
0: Huh. Well... Um,
2: that's well, hang on. I, all right, no, I, I should not make absolute statements that are not true and easily falsifiable. I, I sing in very narrowly defined circumstances, those being entirely liturgical or from the stands at rugby games, or when I was younger after the seventh pint, usually if it was that kind of pub, um, and Dexy's Midnight Runners came on, but otherwise, uh, no, I. I do not have a pleasant singing voice, and so I don't. Don't, you
0: ever, play, don't, don't you ever serenade Mrs. Condon? Sometimes I sing songs. Oh, God,
2: no. If it, on the rare occasions when my wife has, has heard me attempt to sing, um, she narrows her eyes, turns to me, and
0: says in a voice of what I can only describe as near parental concern, don't do that again. Fair enough. You know, I was thinking about, this is neither here nor there for our listeners, but whatever. It's our show. Um, I There is a, at, at the parish where we have been attending Mass, which is, not our parish of domicile, but uh, at the parish where we have been attending um, Mass, there's a chamber choir, and um, I have really been thinking. I mean, I was, I, I was sort of a member of a chamber choir like in high school, and then really have not been. And I was, I've been really thinking about whether or not I might join it. I don't, I don't know. I, don't, I have to find out about the practices and stuff like That's that. That's cool. But I think it'd be fun. Yeah, I, I wish I could sing. I, I am musically like nothing to
2: do with music. Can I? Can I participate actively? And I am a I am a devoted passive receiver of good music. I love to listen to it. I enjoy it very much, but I can't sing. I can't dance. I have zero rhythm. Um, I it's, you know it, it's just not what I was made for. I I can do other things. I can do other things well, JD. But I'm I none of them believing. are musical. I can't I like musical instruments. Terrible. I, my, um, my parents, when I was younger, wasted considerable, I'm sure, for us in the socioeconomic circumstances in which we lived at the time, considerable money that would have been better spent on, like, food or the mortgage. Uh, yeah, because um, Hogwarts was really expensive. I was actually thinking about when I was a young child in Chicago, but thank oh, you. Oh, okay. Um, on, on having Mr. Vitali come over after school to try and teach me piano and then, uh, you know, the sort of, you know, instrument rental thing that every school does, or at least they did when mm-hmm. I was a kid in Chicago, you know, and they got me a saxophone thinking that that might work. And none of, I, I I just couldn't do it. Yeah, I would love to be able to play music. My wife, uh, when we'd been married for a few years and I insisted that I was, you know, I couldn't, I was physically incapable of playing a musical instrument with any kind of proficiency, basically thought I was, you uh, being either lazy or comically modest, and so uh, bought me a ukulele one year huh. for my, uh, I guess it was my birthday, on the assumption that it only has four strings or whatever, and you can pretty much train a Labrador to play one. And after a week of attempted instruction of me, she agreed that I am physically incapable of any kind of <laughs> musical output whatsoever. And we gave the ukulele away to a
0: child who loves it. And, you know, we just, we, it, that's not what I do. When I was a child, my mom signed me up for... Uh, I was in the school band playing the trombone and was good at it. Um, but my mom signed me up for the for a fife and drum corps, probably when I was 10 <laughs> or 11. Or 10. Do you know what a fife and drum corps is? Uh, I do. Only in America. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't last that long because I, what I learned is that you, if you don't come already knowing how to play the drums, which I did not, then you basically practice on a drum pad for like a year before they let you near those drums. And it's like two years before you're in the parade. And I just had like... I just wasn't that interested.
2: That's fair enough.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, the Pillar Podcast is a production of uh, Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting non-musical partner, Ed Condon. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week. Ed, um, I'll have things I want to talk about. You will, too. Nice.